Support for Refined by Fire comes once again from Elkhart Brass, and specifically the Elkhart Brass Chief XD Nozzle. All right, so I want to take everyone back a little over a year to Firemanship Conference in Portland, Oregon, 2017. I'm at the training grounds of a Portland area uh, fire department, helping Gary Lane and his cadre get set up for the DIY engine company. Brian Brush and his guys were there as well, setting up for his gaining relative superiority class. Jeff Shoup and his guys were there setting up for his class. And up walked these guys from Elkar Brass. It was Jerry and Chris, and I didn't know these guys. Uh, but they've got all the gear. They're opening up the big Pelican cases, and these new nozzles are popping out. So, hey, I'm in. I'm interested. And Chris starts kind of showing us around the nozzle, and I'm, I'm waiting. I'm a skeptic. I'm especially skeptical of vendors, so I'm kind of waiting for the pitch. I'm waiting for whatever fancy not important thing they've done to increase their profit margins and try to shove this down our throat. Well, that's not what happened. So, so Chris starts talking about the ball valve. Like that is the very first thing he starts talking about. And I'm like, well, that's different. And the adjustments they made to the ball valve to make sure that it seats properly every single time over thousands and thousands and thousands of uses. Um, like this is, this is not a normal sales pitch. Starts talking about laser etching and how it's, yeah, it's more expensive than stickers, but it's the right thing to do for the departments. It's the right thing to do for the people who are using them. And I'm just not understanding what's going on because this is not the type of talk that I've ever heard from a vendor before I'm used to. This is the fanciest new thing. This is our new product. This is what I've been told to push. So... You know, I left there being pretty impressed with those guys and over the course of the rest of the week being able to interact with them, uh, even more impressed. So when they reached out and wanted to back this show, I was extremely excited about it because I really do believe in what they're doing. So tell you what, don't take my word for it. Go check them out at your local conference, your regional conference, the national conference, Firemanship Conference, Portland, FDIC, whatever it is, they're everywhere. If you're not going to any of those places, you got to hit up your local dealer um, and come out. They'll, they'll come out. They'll do a, a parking lot demo with you. You got to check out these Chief XD nozzles. You got to check out what they're doing. Again, don't take my word for it. Look into it for yourself. Check out the Elkhart Brass products, and I think you'll be impressed. Here we are at episode eight of Refined by Fire podcast. Refined by Fire, as always, is a Brothers in Battle media production. My guests for episode eight are James Greenwood and Luke Miller. Really excited to bring these guys to the larger audience. Maybe are not household names. They're personal friends of mine. They work here locally at Boise Fire Department. And James and Luke are the founders of the Boise Firefighters Symposium, which is a conference that is run through Fire Nuggets. Now, I kind of constantly refer to 
Boise Firefighter Symposium as a quote-unquote small conference. It's not the longest conference out there. It's three days. But I tell you what, there's nothing wasted about this. They only bring the best speakers, the best hands-on um, training. It's it's fantastic. I am in love with Boise Firefighter Symposium. And uh, registration is open now. So I hope that everyone listening will get signed up and that I will see you there because I will definitely be there. So one of the really fun things about James and Luke, these guys have worked together a lot, but they are totally different types of dudes. Um, James was a wildland firefighter, uh, a hotshot slash smoke jumper before becoming a firefighter, was also a lawyer of all things. Luke was a United States Marine reservist and a middle school teacher. So definitely both brought a lot of life experience to the structure of fire service, but very different dudes. Luke's got four kids. James has no kids. Uh, James has two sleeves, uh, tattoo sleeves, that is, including probably my favorite tattoo of all time, which is a coffee is for closers tattoo on the top of his left hand. Luke, as far as I know, has zero visible tattoos. These guys are, I guess what's unique, not unique to either of them, though, is that they share an incredible passion and also an incredible work ethic. So I'm really excited to bring this this episode to to everyone. Lastly, something that I just want to shine a light on is Luke shares with us a little bit of of his story uh, of a battle that that he fought when he was deployed to Iraq in 2004 um, with a tank company with the United States Marine Corps. Luke's a really humble individual and is never going to um, kind of fly his own flag. So I want to do it for him. If you want to learn more about the battle that Luke speaks to in this podcast, you can read, check out the show notes. You can find a book by Brian Stan called Heart for the Fight. You can also check out a newspaper link that I that I put on there from a local newspaper that highlighted him uh, upon his return from Iraq. Luke was actually decorated with the Bronze Star and the Military Vanguard Award um, for his actions in that battle. So um, definitely a guy that I looked up to in a lot of ways and really displayed his character um, in that battle. So I'll stop talking. I hope you enjoy my conversation with James Greenwood and Luke Miller. All right, well, I'm here with the founders of the Boise Fire Symposium, James Greenwood and Luke Miller. What's up, guys? Howdy. Hey. Good to be okay. here. Well, it's good to have you. This is fun. So I, I'm just going to like say it uh, before we get started. I'm not very good at this. I always do this over <laughs> Skype, but I turn off the video so no one can see me like pick my nose or do anything stupid. And I hit mute all the time so I can, you know, do whatever, yell at my kids. But we're here. We're talking in person. So... Um, I'm definitely going to be rough, and now that I'm here with like two of my friends, it'll probably be the worst interview <laughs> I ever do. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll just we'll just see how this goes. All right, uh, we'll get to your individual backgrounds later, but I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit. So, James, you were a smoke jumper, That's and true. Luke, you were a marine. Mm-hmm. So, you're you're in the words of Norman McLean, you're both products of tough institutions. Uh, so I want to know tomorrow the zombie apocalypse hits, which is likely. <laughs> totally. uh, which one of you lives longer? Luke, without a doubt. I don't know, man. 
I got blind rage on my side, but Luke has. You know where the, like, well, the only deep reason spots I, in the woods well, are. Well, the only reason I would there. outlast Luke is because he would be like taking care of other people, and I would just run. From my <laughs> so that's the only possible way I'd outlive you. Uh, I think we'd probably team up back to back. Yeah, Luke would have to take care if of you him. could find him. I think Hendershot. Hinder, yeah, we'd both go to Hendershot's basement. Yeah, yeah. Chris Hendershot's another guy that works here in Boise that has a basement arsenal that we could probably yeah. hang out for a while in. Blackjacks for everybody. Probably got a safe room of some kind. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, as long as you guys have a plan. Mm-hmm. All right. <clears throat> so you're here um, for a couple reasons. You're both cool and interesting people, and I really want to make sure we talked about the Boise Fire Symposium uh, just ahead of uh, registration coming out. And you guys founded that, or at least restarted that. So can you give us the background on the Boise Symposium history and um, like how that got started originally and where you guys picked up at? Well, I'll touch on how it originally started to the best of my knowledge, which I'm certainly not a historian uh, of the Boise Fire Department, but uh, back in the day, there was a training chief, as you know, uh, named Tracy Rayner, who's now the chief of the Valdez uh, Fire Department up in Alaska. Uh, and he, and I believe some other uh, individuals from Boise, went to New York for a high-rise symposium uh, that the FDNY put on. And, and we're talking back, I don't know, early 90s maybe, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, is you know Jerry Tracy was still a captain, and, and they made a bunch of contacts there uh, as they were developing our high-rise uh, protocol here in Boise, and um, they brought a bunch of information back, made a bunch of contacts, and they decided that they wanted to have some sort of uh, high-rise class uh, in Boise, and so those guys, uh, uh, kind of spearheaded by Rayner, uh, started a Boise high-rise symposium, which lasted for a couple of years, which uh, to my Knowledge uh, was something like HROC is now, not, not as big, obviously, um, or as uh, well attended, but, um, but it was something, and they were, they were pretty proud of it. And it, it kind of, you know, they did that for a couple of years, I believe, and I'm sure uh, Chief Rayner or, or Ted Corporandy, some of these guys that have been around a long time, could probably amend this uh, history lesson. <laughs> but um, they, um, they did that for a few years, and then I think it kind of morphed into what they called the Boise Safety, Symbo- uh, Safety Symposium, uh, which was more of a basics firefighting conference like more of what we do now um, and they did that for um, many years uh, Chief Rainer being the training chief had access to the training department uh, in you know, the division in, in Boise Fire Department so they had a, a pretty big budget they had secretaries that could work on registration they had training captains to fill in a bunch of the gaps uh, so they had a pretty big uh, infrastructure to make that happen uh, and then as things do in, in any fire department um, uh, administration changed uh, priorities changed um, and it kind of went in a different direction and sort of went by the wayside. Chief Rayner uh, retired uh, from the Boise Fire Department, and um, and so this, you know the, sort of the tip of the spear kind of went away, and uh, it, priorities changed, and it, it sort of took a hiatus for a couple of years. Uh, right when Luke and I came on, uh, and so through uh, I don't know. I don't even know what you would call our motivation for this whole thing, but somehow, bad <laughs> bad judgment. One too uh, many cups of coffee that exactly, night. Exactly, yeah. You, uh, um, pure ego. I don't exactly know how it happened, but we decided to uh, um, get it going again. And uh, just because we sort of came to a consensus that we didn't want it to die on our watch, having some sort of conference or basic firefighter skills thing. It's not that we weren't getting enough through our department. It just, you know, how it is uh, with most departments these days. We have, there's a lot of I learned training and ISO box checking, not that you don't have to do that, but um, uh, it wasn't what I was looking for on a day-to-day basis or on a, you know, a year annual basis. Uh, it's what we had to do, not what I wanted to do. Right. Uh, and so um, it sort of morphed into uh, bringing it back uh, and just doing it on our own uh, because we didn't have 
necessarily. Uh, there's some uh, rocky road at the beginning. We can kind of get into more of that here in, in follow-up questioning. But um, it, it started off and we didn't have a great deal of support here locally, and not so much because it was a bad idea or people weren't used to it, but just because nothing like that had happened before where, you know, two or three um, back work facing firefighters took on a project as mm -hmm. such with a budget and uh, outside instructors and really, you know, sort of pseudo representing the department uh, in a way that people had never seen before here uh, and weren't comfortable with initially. Uh, and so it took some, some bridge building to make that all go as smoothly as it does at the moment, which, you know, there's still some days where it's not as smooth as, <laughs> as it could be. But I don't know. Did I hit the major points? There? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a pretty good recap of, of things. Yeah. So you guys run this symposium, this conference, um, as a part of Fire Nuggets, you guys run Fire Nuggets Boise. Um, so how did that marriage take place? Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to take over the answering questions here for a minute, I guess, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went to, I've always, I came from another department before I came here, and uh, just through my experience kind of coming up through the fire service in different uh, ways, um, I had always taken a lot of outside classes on my own, uh, and I am a loudmouth and... <laughs> arrogant uh, to some degree and so I saw these guys doing these classes and I think what really sparked it was I went to the first uh, high-rise conference that Chief Isaacson mm -hmm. put on uh, in Pensacola a couple of Pensacola Beach a couple of years ago or when it first started and I don't remember what year it was it would have been like 13 yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was you know, a good experience great conference and, and I thought well hell how hard could it be you know it's kind of one of those sort of uh, situations so I came back and I knew, uh, you know, from taking some, a lot of these outside classes that um, it was great that I was getting the information as a backseat firefighter. It was great that I was learning a lot of stuff and that I was getting all these nuggets that I could personally use. But it didn't do me any good having that knowledge if no one else had that knowledge right. when I was on the fire ground, right? Uh, and so um, I decided that I really wanted a way to get more guys involved. And at the time, you know, we were still coming off the, the recession a little bit. There wasn't a lot of training budget uh, to go around, so we weren't sending a lot of guys uh, or girls out to um, outside training per se. Uh, there just wasn't the money for it, and there still arguably isn't at times, uh, especially as the department grows, uh, and many people run into that situation. Um, but I wanted to do something locally that maybe could get people involved that wouldn't necessarily, you know, maybe they, because of family or other jobs or whatever scheduling, they couldn't travel out of town for a class. I thought these classes were so good that we should do something locally so people around here in our neck of the woods, Boise being geographically isolated, yeah. uh, um, so that other people would have the information that I was getting because I thought it was so valuable. And so I reached out uh, blindly. Fire Nuggets was starting out again uh, after, you know, Schuler and Ted Corcorandi uh, had kind of retired and passed, passed the, uh, the mic to uh, Dave Sprague and Alfonso Munoz and John Piquet in, in Berkeley, fire, in the Berkeley Fire Department uh, in California. Uh, and I just basically cold called Sprague uh, and... Um, I can't say enough for those guys. Uh, they basically gave us a, a credit card and told mm -hmm. us to, they would support us any way that we could. And that was our main problem is we could get, you know, we could raise money, ask people for money, you know, beg, borrow, and steal. Uh, but we didn't have a way to do anything with that money. And that was really the first stumbling block we had as putting on the conference or classes. Uh, we needed a way to take people's money uh, that we weren't going to run into, you know, IRS problems. We weren't going to run into any of the, the issues that we would, commingling funds or, or whatever. Um, and so they gave us a platform to do that, being a 501c3. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, they basically gave us, uh, you know, free reign to help us out any way we could. Uh, you know, we I talked with Brian Brush a lot starting off. Uh, just, I, you know, met him taking some classes, and he was a wealth of information as far as uh, helping us out early on. 
and we just started doing one-day classes to see if we could do it. Uh, and when those were somewhat successful, we, we kind of decided that, again, uh, we didn't want the Boise Symposium to, to die on our watch. Uh, and so we resurrected it to some degree. <laughs> so. And luckily, you know, at, early on, I realized that I, it wasn't something that I was going to be able to do on my own. Uh, because I am, although I am a great idea guy, I'm not always the best in organizing guy. And so I brought Luke in pretty early because uh, he is the backbone of the, the organization. He's yeah. the nerd that can he organize. Is, exactly. <laughs> and then another guy that is on shift now and couldn't be here, a guy named Joe Lunghoffer, who you know, really works over in Truck 7 in Boise, um, uh, who's another just organized and motivated individual. And so the three of us sort of, uh, you know, over time, we all got involved. And, and there's a few other guys, Chris Hendershot and uh, Tim Raymond and Brian Vseth are really the core guys uh, that are there every year, Zach Emerson maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. And those are the, kind of the core guys that, that uh, you know, are basically all, you know, you know with the, I mean, Zach is a captain, but everybody else is just a, a you know, backseat firefighter. Uh, and, you know, we've been somewhat successful the last few years in, in doing something that, you know, is much bigger than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So. Excellent. Uh, 14 was the first year, or was that 15? I can't remember. This is year four. 15, I think. So it would be 14. Yeah. Then. Uh, 15 was the first year. I think. Okay, that's right. Yeah, I think we started doing one-day classes in the end of 13 or early 14. Yeah. And then you had the first Breslau here was, and yeah, a couple of those deals. And, yeah, I think Van mm-hmm. Dorp came out pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I can't remember. Yeah. We had a bunch. Yeah. All right, so that, that first year, the, the Firefighter Symposium, I attended – and uh, it was fantastic. I remember you guys running around though, and and having like a look on your face <laughs> of, of that look of, of like everything is being held together right now, but only just right. Uh, so I have to imagine it was pretty fraught with doubt. But what was the best thing for you guys that first year? Hit it, Luke. Um, I think probably. Um, the encouragement we received when it was going on, like everybody's attitude that came, they wanted to be there, they wanted to take classes, and those were happening. And and all of the little things that went wrong were insignificant. Like I don't I, I don't remember what they are now because they just don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, people were super gracious by just showing up, working hard, and overlooking all the the silly things that we do wrong, and the fact that. People walked away even with one or two nuggets of information that they could take back to their departments to make them better. Um, that was super satisfying for me. Yeah, I think uh, for me, just the most the the best part uh, was just the interaction. You know, like we, you know, uh, like I said, we, you know, you get kind of caught up in your own bubble, and you know, there's the political political things and and you know day-to-day stuff where you know it's like a family where you you know all you see is the faults and the people you work with uh sometimes uh but then you get a a group of people uh into a place to train whether it be our conference or somebody else's or even one day classes um and that stuff isn't there you know you get to kind of just go out and have fun and you know take a bunch of doors or or you know do whatever stuff you do and blow a bunch of water um and you know it just is it's it's like playtime you know and that and that's right you know you go through all this work you know, you, que- you question all kinds of stuff uh, as you're, you know, uh, getting browbeat for whatever reason. And uh, um, and then when it actually happens, it's such a low-key, enjoyable event that, like you said, you know, all that all that sort of, like, uh, excess, the, the friction and the, the white noise kind of goes away a little bit. It's just you can just enjoy it a little bit, even though, you know, it's a bunch of, a bunch of work. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty fun just seeing other people have fun even. 
in that in that I mean, especially with something that you've worked so hard to create yeah. so yeah it's just pretty pretty fulfilling in that in that mm-hmm. way very cool <clears throat> um there's a lot of little conferences i know i don't mean that to demean the amount of work you guys put in because <laughs> yeah. i because i i'm kind of intimately familiar with what it takes to run a little class yeah. or something like that but there are a lot of these smaller regional type conferences that are popping up um What's the role that these things are filling, and like specifically for Boise Fire Symposium, what's how does that provide value to people um, when when compared to these huge national conferences? Yeah, I think that one piece of of the history of the symposium was that it largely um, drew from rural Idaho and neighboring small departments, and that's who came to the symposium back in the day when we teamed up with Fire Nuggets, their influence and reach was far greater. So that first year, one of the surprises to me, and every year, is the region that we draw from is a lot greater. And I think what we're seeing is with these little ones pop up, it's appealing. I would rather travel an hour to go get really good quality training than travel six hours on a plane to go get the same training. So uh, I think people are realizing that with a little sweat equity, you can bring the really good instructors to your own backyard, uh, go home, see your family at night, which I know for me is uh, a really, that helps me actually get training. I, I have four kids, so the thought of getting to go to a training for four days to my wife is, that's just a, a non-starter. Uh, so if I can put in some time planning it and then go work hard, come home, kiss my kids goodnight, mm-hmm. uh, talk to my wife for an hour and go back and do it the next day. Like she can buy off on that. And I think that's the case for a lot of people is that just the availability of being able to bring them. Uh, we've got a, a lot of really great instructors uh, going around the country sharing their passion and, and their expertise. Um, and I think it's, it's making a difference. And for me, ha- having a little more ability to travel uh, and go to these classes, the thing that I like about the smaller conferences is just how intimate they are compared to the bigger stuff. You know, you go to FDIC, and although there's a, definitely a place for that because, you know, all the vendors are there, and if you're looking to, you know, trick out a new engine or buy the latest gadget, uh, that's the place you want to go to see all the vendors and, and see the most um, instructors that you could possibly see. Uh, but then if you go to, you know, um, you know the hands-on classes, there's so many people going through and there's so many buses going all over the place and so many, you know, there's, you know, two people you want to see in the same time slot in the lecture portion. Um, it, it, it's just such a bigger deal, you know what I mean? Uh, and so it's a lot nicer to go to these smaller conferences, um, you know, whether it be the Mile High Firefighters Conference or Art of Firemanship Days or, or one of those. Um, and they're all, you know... Um, m- a lot of the same instructors are at those that go to FDIC or just travel around the country, and so it's a lot more intimate experience. You actually get to go see the instructors, have more one-on-one time, uh, and, and and also you know the people that are there are such a smaller number. You get actually to meet some people versus mm-hmm. you know just being this you know the cattle car uh, going out to the thing. And again, not to knock on FDIC because there is a place for all of those you know kind of larger stuff, um, but. Uh, I can't even imagine the coordination it would take, you know, the army of people it would take to run something like that. So that's not even really, uh, you know, I can't, I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I think it's that on that intimacy side, uh, the class sizes are small enough and there's hospitality nights that you can go and actually have a beer with the instructor. Uh, and 
here talk one on one and ask the question that's particular to your department. They can they can enter into that a lot easier because of those numbers are so much smaller. So I think it's a win win. Like yeah. instructors aren't overwhelmed by having a class size of two hundred people that they're trying to to talk to, and it's probably more fun. Mm -hmm. I would imagine anyway. Yeah, more reps. Mm -hmm. So you guys have been at it a little while. What's been the hardest lesson you've learned? Like, what's the thing you've continued to beat your head against and and maybe solve or maybe not yet? Man, I don't know. There's so many lessons. It's hard to draw. Like, I, they come and go, and I forget them and then relearn them. Uh, I, You know, communication is always, you know, say that every line of duty death and every, you know, just because it's kind of this wide net that you can cast. Uh, it covers a lot of missteps that we've taken. And I think the, the, the thing that's always struck me about the communication side of things is especially when you're communicating with admin uh, of any department, um, would be that I'm always surprised at the stuff that people are interested in or, like, I don't know, I can't always forecast the things that are going to make people upset because you, tr you try to cover all your bases and then you've missed one thing that may be minor to me but all of a sudden is not minor to someone else. And so um, I guess I, I learn to err on the side of giving too much information versus you know, thinking things aren't important, uh, and but sometimes that isn't effective either. So I don't, you know, I don't know if there's a winning, you know, a winning solution that I've come up with yet. But I think um, just the inability that I have to forecast um, what to say or what not to say at times uh, is always a, a continuing challenge. I think, <clears throat> but I think you could say that about just about any subject that you have to deal with in a larger scale. You know, right? Everybody likes to be in charge of their own domain, uh, and when you're uh, seen as doing something that's out of step with what people are used to, that tends to raise people's hackles, and uh, and uh, sometimes they want more information uh, than you're giving them at times. And I think that's been a learning process that we're still working out, but mm -hmm. it's gotten better. But yeah, I I've been sitting here trying to figure out how to phrase this without <laughs> throwing just people under the bus, but the ones that I'll throw under the bus probably won't listen to this anyway, so, because they're unengaged and you'll see why. <laughs> uh, I think my biggest frustration that just causes me to beat my head against the wall is people in our own department that are totally unengaged with this, that have zero interest in coming to it, even though, as we've as we've built year by year, our department is now willing to pay for people to come from our department. They're willing to uh, send on-duty crews to take this training. And still, there are um, quite a few firefighters that would rather uh, do inventory and, now it's Florida, we gotta, we gotta get the bay clean. And it kills me because <laughs> we have these amazing instructors we've budgeted and bought enough lunches for on-duty crews to come and we've uh, communicated it to the best of our ability and we're super excited to see that change affect our department and sometimes just getting people there is still like pulling teeth which kills me so if they're not going to come and do that I doubt that they're <laughs> spending their time <laughs> listening to firefighting podcast if so uh i guess but that's not mean spirited that's right? not mean spirited because you no. want it because you want it for them like you you want yeah. them to come experience this to make them better yeah exactly and and i think there's so much value in getting out and hearing something new even if it doesn't fit for the department even if it even if you can't do it because of staffing or any other objection that's legitimate 
we can't implement that, it still creates such good discussion and reinforces that what you're doing is still the best way rather than just putting up walls and living in a box and ignorance is bliss kind of mentality. Oh, that's my biggest frustration yeah. year after year, I yeah. think. I'm glad you covered that one too because it, it affects me from time to time. I was going on the admin route and you were going on the, the, the peer route, which I appreciate we can hit them from all sides. <laughs> so. so is it getting easier? It is, oh, I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, both in, uh, you know, anything you practice year after year tends to get easier in, yeah. in one side. And then the other thing is it's become normal to people, right? So when we first started off, it was such a weird thing that people in this part of the world, you know, just, you know, we had a very, um, I don't want to, I don't want it to sound bad, but there, it was a very sort of regimented fire department that we came to where, um, and I think in the past more so than now, and that the hiring practices have changed in the last however many years, but you know, historically, um, they'd kind of hire local guys that were like 21 years old, and they'd get hired pretty young, and they'd come up through the ranks, and they'd have strong uh, captains that you know really uh, were uh, type A personalities that you know mother may I type of fire department, and a lot of places are, are that way, uh, where uh, you know back backseat guys didn't. Uh, didn't really get to develop an opinion about things until long into their career when they really had proven themselves. Uh, and since, you know, there's a big gap in hiring, and then uh, Luke and I's class was hired, um, and they hired a bunch of people, and, and in some of the classes before us as well, uh, that really came from places with life experience. Um, you know, m myself coming from, you know, Wildland and having a weird academic background, and, and Luke having a, a you know, pretty uh, uh, amazing uh, military background, and just our whole class was full of just all-star guys, man, that, that had done all kinds of stuff previously, whether it be military or Wildland or, um, you know, whatever. And it was just a, a pretty great class to be involved in, uh, and, and the classes on either side of us as well. Uh, and, and have continued to do that hiring uh, practice. And so the guys and girls that came out on the line, uh, in, you know, in, the, in recent years, the last 10 years or more, um, all really brought a lot to the table. And so I think uh, it wasn't weird for us to do it, but it might have been weird for some of the guys uh, that had been in the department for a long time. Uh, and so that caused some friction early on because it just hadn't been done before. And now that this has gone on for years, uh, and that people that have come into the department have been more proactive. Um, the culture has really shifted a little bit in, in the sense that I think, you know, uh, we have a lot more input into how stuff goes just by sheer numbers of people in the in the younger ranks that have come up, uh, and and those of us with these kind of shared values of training and whatnot that we have. Not that they didn't have it before; it's just a different concept, a different model. Um, and so I think that's been. A, a positive uh, coming up and I think that so it's just been normalized and so now you know younger younger guys and girls that have ideas or that want to be involved in things or want to talk about a new idea it's a lot more uh, accepted uh, than it was when we first started so that's been helpful for sure yeah I think it's been neat to see that trans that transition a little bit too just that it's not no shut up and we're not interested in what you have to say um, there's definitely value in the veterans of the fire service like they bring so much experience that i have no idea of i bring like hey i read this this and this yeah and if you kind of meld those ideas would it work this way and they're willing to consider it and sometimes it's yeah. swatted down yeah and sometimes it's like kind oh, of well let's go give it a try yeah um but it's no longer generally speaking it's no longer just like hey we're not we're not interested to talk to me when you've got 100 yeah. fires under your belt yeah 
which that's that's just encouraging to me to see that yeah. shift in culture. When you guys aren't going to pat yourselves on the back, so I'll do it for you. <laughs> you know, you've you've really paved the way for those folks coming after you, specifically at your department, but in this region, and then you know, uh, vis-a-vis the people coming into the symposium. Um, you, you made a lot of change, so I really appreciate you guys stepping up and doing that. Well, and you guys over here in Eagle obviously have done that as well too. The Trunk Academy is a huge, was a huge step uh, for um, just training in the valley as well, and it's just such a great program as well. So I, we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, mention that Quad County Trunk Academy as well as, as a training event in the valley that's yeah. really paved paved some way. So. Yeah, as well as Brothers in Battle getting after it yeah. in our region and yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's again, it's sort of synergistic with, yeah. you know, Olsen and Rosenbaum and you, and, and uh, it really, you know, kind of lets us all kind of bounce stuff around, and, and there's just a lot of good ideas floating around uh, in, in our neck of the woods, and, you know, all over the place, really, but um, it's good to have, you know, have that, you start getting frustrated about something, or, or you don't know, you need a contact info, you can shoot somebody a text that's close by and, and, and get it right away, so it's, it's been helpful all around. It's been good. I like that you uh, mentioned your class, your recruit class, and maybe being a little bit of an older class, guys with, with you know, some life experience. Um, you guys both have really interesting backgrounds. James, you, you dipped your, your toe into the water with a strange academic background. Um, so you have a background in law. You True. went to law school. Um, give me, give me you know, what that was, what your academic background was why you study law and why you don't study law now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, uh, I don't know. I, you know, like everything else, I, my entire life has been like walking around a dark room with your eyes closed and your hands out in front of you. Like I never really had a plan. I just like stumbled into everything I've done. Uh, so <clears throat> I was a, a wildland guy. I, I always wanted to be a firefighter when I was growing up. When I was a kid, my mom was an ER nurse. Uh, my dad was kind of a business guy who's got a kind of a cool story himself. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but um, they got divorced when I was young, grew up, my mom was an ER nurse, so I've kind of always been around sort of that service type of, uh, uh, you know, emergency services type of thing. You know, I grew up going to, you know, she always worked three to 11s, uh, and we'd go in and have dinner with mom at the hospital, at the cafeteria of the hospital, and there'd always be, you know, I grew up uh, kind of in Collar Springs in Denver, and, uh, you know, she worked in busy hospitals, and he'd always cruise through the ER doors, and there was ambulances and firefighters hanging out and all the, you know, the, you know, the triage. Uh, and um, it, that was always something that appealed to me. So uh, I wanted to be a firefighter as long as I can remember. And when I was going to school, I went to undergrad at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. And um, uh, I knew, I, you know, I was going to school, but I didn't really have a plan. I started as a business major, and I took like one 8 a.m. microeconomics class, and that was it for that. I, at the time, I was taking like a Western Civ class from a, a graduate uh, history professor named Ginger, uh, and I thought that if I became a history major, that maybe I could take some more classes from Ginger. <laughs> uh, so I became a history major and never saw Ginger again, but uh, neither here nor there. Um, so uh, you know, that's kind of the level of planning that my life is taking. Uh, so um, I, I randomly uh, got my EMT and was working as a uh, on the ambulance uh, as like a reserve uh, for the ambulance there in Fort Collins, and I met a guy that was a Forest Service worked for the Forest Service as well, and he got me a job as a GS two, which if you know anything about GS ratings in the in the federal government is like one step below minimum wage. You know, it's like <laughs> the most money I'd ever made in my life. I was super stoked, but you know, I was, I was a firefighter, right? So I got to. I, you know, again, divorced parents, grew up in the city. The first time I ever slept outside, really, that I wasn't drunk was uh, uh, out of my first fire when I was, like, 18 uh, and froze my ass off. And 
but had a great time, and uh, so I was I was hooked uh, with the violin stuff, and so I finished my uh, undergrad and was doing wildland stuff and I you know kind of was on the engines through college and then as soon as I got done with school I knew I wanted to be a hotshot because I'd seen those guys going to all the fires and heard you know was regaled with those stories and uh, I got uh, a job uh, at sort of a at the time the local hotshot crew I was going like I said I was living in Fort Collins but I got hired on with Alpine Interagency Hotshot Crew which is up in uh, Estes Park Colorado and um, I worked up there for um, many years uh, not many years four or five years and um, um, was really just living the dream, man. I, you know, I, I kind of had a, got a little girl and, uh, you know, was hanging out, bought a house with her and I was going to get married, you know, engaged. And I had like the, um, total hotshot, uh, nightmare where, uh, like, you know, I was out on the road and I was supposed to, I was engaged with this, uh, uh, this woman. And, uh, all of a sudden there's no more phone calls coming from home. And, you know, there, there, there was trouble, trouble in Whoville. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, he ends up, she got pregnant with somebody else's kid while I was out on the road, old Sancho. Ooh, exactly, I know, right? Man. So there's like, you know, a little... How do I not know this Yeah, story? so a little Jimmy Greenwood had the, uh, you know, the reckoning, more or less, of like what I was going to do with my life. <laughs> I was down in the dumps and depressed, angry young man. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was basically ski bumming, like screwing around in the wintertime skiing and hotshotting in the summertime. And uh, and so I kind of had like, you know, I'd been hotshotting for a few years and is getting, you know, there's kind of this range of hotshots where you kind of go through this, this evolution, you know, it's kind of like the, whatever the, I don't know, uh, Van, not Van Gogh. Um, that's the uh, the the man, the ape to man drawing. Uh, that's uh, Da Vinci. Da Vinci's ape to man, where you start off as like this little ape, and you kind yeah, of, yeah. but instead of turning into a man, you just turn into like this jaded, bitter person. <laughs> that's the hot shot evolution. That's a hot shot evolution. So I was pretty jaded uh, and just beat up and mentally beat up after that whole sort of relationship thing. And uh, so I was like, well, what am I going to do with my life? I've got a history degree. I'm basically a ski bum. I'm, you know, um a hotshot, which, you know, if I continue doing this, I'm going to be like a hotshot superintendent for 20 years. And I'll be spending all my money on my porn and video games and, uh, uh, and Cheetos. exactly. And Cheetos. Exactly. And that, so I said, well, I got to do something with my life, you know? I, and so I'm like, well, I could go to law school, I guess. And I don't want to get a grad degree in, in history. I could go to law school. Uh, I didn't know anything about law school. So <laughs> I, I took an LSAT, just kind of on a whim, managed to pass. I knew I kind of wanted to smoke jump at some point, maybe if I was going to continue in the wildland uh, gig. So I was like, well, uh, I could, you know, I'll go up to where the smoke jumper bases are, which, you know, or Idaho and Montana. And uh, so I applied to both those law schools, happened to get in and uh, up in uh, University of Idaho, let you get in-state residency after one year. And Montana did not. You had to be out of state if you started out of state. Uh, and so that was how the decision was made to come to the University of Idaho's law school, the Ivy League of the panhandle of Idaho. <laughs> and um, I got up to law school and... Um, you know, big life change, uh, and I, I, I seriously came strapped line. I was working as a hotshot. I literally uh, was uh, was running the crew. I was just doing a, a rotation as a crew boss trainee. And my finally got signed off, so I, I, I literally came off running a hotshot crew, a burning operation right off Lake Chelan in Washington. I came off the fire, flew to Fort Collins where my stuff was in a in a uh, storage unit, threw it all in a U-Haul, grabbed my dog, uh, drove straight through from Fort Collins to uh, Moscow, Idaho, and one day later I was in law school. And like a shaved head, I had still had, like scratches from where the branches had like cut me from sawing. <laughs> and uh, I'm, 
I, I have several friends uh, from those days, and they all admit that they thought it was like some sort of prison release program, uh, like law school program. When I showed up in the first week, like intro, you know, introductions or whatever. You have your hotshot beard? Uh, no, I was all, I was all, I was, I was, I was all bearded up and like gnarly, so I just shaved everything. So I had, like shaved head, shaved face. I just looked like some sort of Holocaust survivor. Uh, and uh, so I, yeah, I got there, and within about a month, uh, I realized that. You know, all these people that were there, their family had been lawyers or judges or, you know, they're just from like a different background than I was from. Uh, and, you know, not to knock on them. And, you know, I'm sure there's, there's wonderful people that are, there are wonderful people that are lawyers for sure. Uh, but it just wasn't my crowd. And so within about a month, I was like, I hate these people. You know, it's good. <laughs> I hate this place. Uh, and, uh, but I'm just a competitive jerk uh, like all of us. Uh, and so there's no way they were going to beat me and make me quit. Uh, so just out of spite. Uh, I I uh, I, re- I refused. Three and a half years. I refused. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> thousands of dollars. I refused to quit. Uh, and um, so I had this. You know, this is probably a, pod, a podcast. Probably not for. Uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't admit this. And I don't want to sound too sexist or anything. But much like my ginger history professor, I had this fantasy going through that I was going to have like this secretary that was going to wear garter belts and bring me coffee every day. You know, that was like what got me through law school. Is I was just going to be this high powered attorney that was going to have you know all this you know, power and prestige. Uh, and I ended up becoming a, a smoke jumper. And then when I did work law uh, in the wintertime a few years, uh, I worked for the BLM and my uh, secretary's name was Doris and she was like 65 years old. <laughs> and she had so much BL uh, like banked up from her career that like she worked like one day a week and just took VL the rest of it and like didn't answer the phone. So like I was answering my own phone, you know, yeah, so that was kind of where the, the career, where the dream faded. And I passed the bar in Nevada out of spite, uh, and I worked it for a couple winters while I was jumping still in the summertime. And uh, and so now I'm just like a inactive member of the State Bar of Nevada and a really cheap, um, bad legal advice for most of the union <laughs> and the guys on the department at this point. So. Yeah. How many calls do you get per month from guys at, on the at department? At least one. At least one. Or somebody's asking me about a divorce or, a, yes, whatever, something. You get a lot of TMI with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably yeah, more information than I have. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But it's always something. Some some document somebody <laughs> needs or some, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, I think we ahead. love it and love it and hate it. Yeah. Boise, like... We don't need your <laughs> your law advice right now, Jimmy. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. But but when we need it, man, is it nice to have? Uh, so what is it about this job? What is it about structured firefighting that seems to have unlocked a part of you that was dissatisfied with the hotshot crew, with law? Because you're passionate, dude. You're 100 percent all in. Yeah, and you know I was with that stuff too. Um, again, I love firefighting, so I love the firefighting part of the wildland. The problem with the wildland after time is you either have to commit 100% and just realize that I am not going to have a normal family, I'm not going to have a normal life, uh, which is fine, and a lot of guys can do that. Um, um, but, you know, I was, I was jumping, I met a girl that I've now uh, married, and it just became a burden on her, and you start feeling bad about being gone so much, you know, and, and you know, much like Luke was talking about with going to training is if you're jumping, uh, you're pretty much signing up, especially from a BLM base, that you're going to be on the road minimum six months a year uh and you know it's great because you get to go where the fires are you know it'd be like being a structure firefighter and like hey they're having a string of fires in detroit so you guys are going to detroit this week you know like sweet you know yeah how great would that be Uh, and that's what life was like as a jumper um just wherever fires where you went but the downside of that is you you don't you you are on the road all the time and so the structure firefighting allows me to keep 
that fire aspect where and it even adds to that the, the medical aspect and the other stuff that we do the technical rescue the hazmat stuff and allows me to come to work and you don't know what you're going to do mm -hmm. on a daily basis and that is such a selling point for me because when you're doing legal stuff you go to work every day and you may get different clients and different stuff but you know you're going to be sitting in front of a computer researching out of you know westlaw or lexus nexus uh and it's the same thing every day for your whole career and you may be able to find niches of you know this original legal stuff but uh it's not the same you know it's not that you know i'm adhd you know thing that that all of us have to some degree i'm sure it's cool you wrote a really cool article i'm looking around here for it because i have it here it is uh in fire nuggets a couple years ago called the murder of the impossible it's really great um more more guys need to read it it's fire nuggets is such an underutilized publication uh and and i think that's a shame because a lot of great people are putting a lot of great content into it this is a really cool piece um you make this analog between alpine, alpine climbing and firefighting so can you can you tell me a little bit about the piece and like how you know mentally you made that connection yeah and it's changed for me over the years too um so where it, uh, the the um, the start of it was, I worked for this Alpine Agency hotshot crew, and um, there was a foreman, the guy that was second in charge on the crew, was a guy named Dave Hamrick, and Dave Hamrick was like man's man. I mean, he was an absolute mentor, just a stud of a human being, uh, not only a great firefighter, kind of one of those guys that seemed like um, just intuitively knew what was happening, right? He's, you know, and it's just experience and just being a solid leader, and just he always said the right thing, always knew the right thing to say. You know, we'd get in these hairy situations and people would be losing, you know, getting mad and, and uh, he would sit everybody down and pretty soon, you know, we'd all, you know, give a rah-rah speech and we'd all be charging up the hill again, right? And he's just one of those type of leaders. Um, and he was a, uh, uh, a pretty avid uh, rock climber and kayaker and um, he, you know, climbed El Cap and was a, um, a climbing ranger on Long's Peak, which is a pretty, another kind of big deal in us as part for climbing, uh, the climbing community. Um, and he had kind of given most of that up and was just doing fire and, and he still does fire and he's a kind of a big wig down in Colorado still now um but he one time when we were out on some fire I can't really even remember where it was now maybe uh in Colorado somewhere and um we were just sitting around a campfire talking about stuff and he brought up this article by a guy named Reinhold Messner who's sort of a you know legend in the in Alpine uh community uh, he was the first guy to summit Everest without oxygen, and, and uh, he, he brought up this essay that he wrote in the early 70s uh, that was in just some random climbing magazine, um, and it's called The Murder of the Impossible, and, and, and Reinhold Messner's uh, uh, Murder of the Impossible essay was about um, sort of the beauty of climbing and how in his, in his lifetime, climbing had become about, like, you know, you know driving bolts and climbing a plumb line route, just, uh, you know, any obstacle, uh, you could just beat it with technology, right? You could just slam a few bolts into a wall, uh, and ascend with, you know, Jumars or whatever ascending devices you wanted to do, and you could just overcome any obstacle just with technology, and it was uh, murdering the impossible. Like, there were climbing routes that ne nobody had ever been able to climb in a traditional sense um, until these guys showed up and just sort of manhandled. And, and one of his points was like, you know, mountains can't run away and they can't mm -hmm. defend themselves, and so these people were coming on, uh, on and they were doing these things, uh, and they were really destroying the soul of what alpine climbing was uh, to him. And so... Um, the point of that conversation, the point of him bringing it up, as I recall, and you know, it's, it's probably hyperbole and, and whimsical in my mind now because it meant something to me, and he's probably totally forgotten if you asked him now, um, was that um, 
kind of an, an idea of embracing the suck, you know what I mean? Like, um, we can, you know, use technology, especially in the wildland world, when, when I was doing that, you know, being a hotshot is not a glorious thing. I know they just made a movie about the, you know, the uh, Grand Mountain guys, and, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously unfortunate uh, what happened to those guys, but um, it's not a romantic job. It, you go out and you suffer, and that's what being a hotshot is, just endurance of discomfort. You're, you're hauling around five-gallon QVs and chainsaws up, nor, you know, gnarly places. You're always too hot or too cold or sleeping on rocks, or like nothing is ever comfortable or pleasant. Uh, um, but there's just these these moments where you like do a cool burnout or you you know uh, you know cut down some gnarly burning tree that you know is, could kill somebody or I mean there's you know it's all like this grind of uh, suck uh, with these these moments that and then you know when you come in the off season all you remember is those feel good yeah. moments you know and then so when you go back you forget about the mopping up 300 feet in in some black spot in the middle of Nevada you know uh, but anyways he was bringing what he uh, this conversation the murder of the impossible at the time was like. Um, you know, you can try to shirk work and shirk uh, the real suck of being a hotshot, um, or you can just embrace it and just know that that's really where the beauty comes. And that, in, in, in retrospect, now that I look back on it, that, that's really what formed my work ethic as an adult uh, was, you know, those hours of just discomfort. Uh, and um, that mental strength that comes from that means so much more than just, you know, we're going to use a hella torch to burn out this entire state as opposed to going to where it's steep and gnarly and just working hard, you know what I mean? Uh, and that's kind of where the soul and where the real growth comes from. And so that's kind of what it meant to me then. And, and that article I wrote, uh, I sort of pulled some of those lessons into my present job as a firefighter. And it's really when the slicer stuff was going on, uh, you know, hot and heavy when it first came out, people were really getting up in arms about Reesey versus slicers and all that, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and so it just sort of made me think, uh, kind of go back to this murder of the impossible and, uh, the idea that, um, you know, we can use technology, um, but there's a reason why the tactics we use work, uh, and maybe they are harder and they are a little more dangerous uh, for, uh, for us or the people we're going in after, um, but maybe that's where the real growth as human beings comes from, is putting in that work. And maybe, and maybe I don't even mean on fires. Uh, maybe I just mean in the training for going to fires, is that uh, that work and that... Um, uh, just that suffering or that endurance uh, is really where uh, where the beauty of our profession lies and where the real, uh, the meat of our profession lies versus, you know, the actual, like, the problem solving of, of you know, just knocking the building down or, or whatever, if that makes any sense. And uh, I don't know. That sounds a lot more like that, that. I just put a lot more words into it than I probably should have. But <laughs> <laughs> No, it, it's cool. And thanks for, thanks for giving us the background on it. Um, I'll attach the link to the show notes or... Um, a PDF or whatever we got to do, so so people can read that. <clears throat> Luke, you're not very comfortable talking about yourself, so now I'm going to turn and look at you. Yeah. This is, I've really been looking forward to this, man. Like you <laughs> squirming in the seat a little bit. Um, so I know you. You know we're friends, but you know I realized as I prep for this, like I didn't really know your story because that's not really the context that we always. Mm-hmm. Um, see each other and we see each other at training, we see each other at little planning meetings or whatever, and we talk about firefighting, maybe ask about family a little bit. But, um, I mean, I know you spent time in the Marine Corps, and I believe you were a teacher at one mm-hmm. point. And, like, and that's it. That's all the Luke Miller that I know. So, um, like, give me the cliff notes on how you ended up, you know, uh, yeah. behind the wheel of an engine at Boise Fire Department. Um, man, like... Forrest Gump style, I think, is how I ended up there. Um, 
I always had wanted to be a firefighter since the classroom presentation that we all get to give now, uh, since I was the on the receiving end of that in elementary school, I thought it'd be awesome. I got to demonstrate stop, drop, and roll and thought it was the coolest thing. Um, and then in, in high school, I thought, I, I was in a uh, health class and I was watching the teacher do their thing. And I'm like, I could do that. I want to be a teacher. And for some reason, I pursued that instead of firefighting first. So I went, uh, most of my Marine Corps time was in the reserves um, here in Boise. So I was a, a tanker and went to school and then did the one monthly, where one weekend a month, two weeks a year deal while going to college and uh, got a job teaching math. And then uh, that my first year teaching, um, my company got deployed to Iraq, so uh, I got had the opportunity to go uh, serve overseas, and that's really about the only active duty time that I saw. Um, so I was in for a little over 10 years and learned a lot of really great lessons. I uh, got to be with some really great people, uh, and like James said, like a lot of suck, yeah. <laughs> just a lot of miserable times sleeping on a tank, uh, being up at all hours, and um, the math side of me worked out this calculation. Well, not calculation, estimation of of the Marine Corps career, and I think. About seventy percent of the time, it sucks, <laughs> and twenty percent of the time, like it really sucks to the point where you're ready to just here's my gear. I don't care what the consequences are. Like this, this is so miserable. I don't care. Um, and then ten percent of the time, it is awesome. And when you're getting to pull the trigger on a tank and run down range and have multiple targets popping up and uh, all of that stuff is super fun, but that's only 10%, that's like a little teeny sliver. And between that 10% and and the people that you get to be with, it it makes it worthwhile, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun deal, uh, even though the numbers are overwhelming in terms of what, how fun it is and how crappy it is. Um, I, I think there were a ton of lessons in the, in the Marine Corps that translated over into firefighting. Um, especially with tanks because working with a small crew and that unit cohesion and anticipating each other's moves and, and being on the same page so that with with one word or one look even uh, I would know uh, what what the tank commander wanted or when I became a tank commander I could quickly and efficiently uh, tell my crew what to do um, and just when you get to that point you're just clicking with with your crew members uh, so many good lessons like that that translate over into the fire department. Prioritizing um, actions when there's so much chaos going on, being able to to kind of disengage from that, pick apart what needs to get done right now, and then making it happen quickly. Um, so that was super formative for me. Um, and when I got back from Iraq, I the Marine Corps Reserves does Toys for Tots, and most fire stations are collection sites. So I was driving around. And that is when it reignited the passion of becoming a firefighter, just stopping in and guys were always in a good mood and uh, getting to, like, I'd interrupt a workout. I'm like, hey, they're getting to work out in the middle of their day. That is, how do I get some of that? Um, and, and then seeing them go out on calls and just remembering that kind of that rush of, I'm going to go do something important. And I don't know exactly what it is, but game on. Um, all of that combined reignited 
an interest for me of getting back into uh, or trying to get into the, the firefighting. So I started testing and uh, closed door after closed door, just never did well enough on tests and kind of at one point I was two tenths off from getting an interview and I, I took that as a sign from God that I was not supposed to be a firefighter <laughs> and, and kind of hung up those hopes and just went, well, I guess I'm meant to be a teacher and I'm, I'm fine with that. I was, I enjoyed teaching. I felt fulfilled as a teacher. Um, and then three years later, that passion reignited again and I couldn't tell you why, but it, the timing was right. And um, if, if God said not that wasn't what he wanted for me uh those three years later uh, it was the timing was right so uh, i didn't score as well on the test but i got to got an interview that year and um said the right things i guess and you told the story that's what you did i told the story yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and <laughs> no no yeah now you gotta tell it gotta tell it this is the story this is the story no any interview you'd be an idiot not to hire him for whatever job if he gets an interview he's getting hired no matter what happens because of this story come on so so luke so i got on with the fire department <laughs> <laughs> get, well get to do what i i mean here's the deal luke i, I don't want to throw you under the bus um, I know what it's like to have stories that you're you're reticent to tell for whatever reason. He's um, humble. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I think what we're we're talking about is humility, and that's actually next on the notes here. But you were decorated during your tour, and there's probably some lessons in that story. And the whole point of this podcast is to collect stories. So, um, would you mind running us down? The, yeah. the story of uh, when you phrase it like that it makes it way less story. about me yeah. <laughs> I just uh, wanted to be recorded so that I can just listen to it myself from time to time really because you never tell it so I don't like telling it uh, and part of the reason is because uh, it's it I don't like to be the center of a story I guess um, and, and try and toot my own horn or, or promote things for myself it was I had to tell that story in some coaching I received the interview he's like you've got to tell it I'm like I hate telling it you're a, you're an idiot if you don't yeah. bring this up so I practiced and practiced um uh yeah so when I was deployed uh the tank next to mine was blown up by a, an improvised explosive device and it pretty significantly injured three of the crew members um knocked out the fourth crew member um although he was uninjured um and they needed to be evacuated it destroyed their tank and so um i got off my tank and and basically helped evacuate them um and i don't remember a lot of fire going we'd been in some intense fighting at that position before i don't remember any fighting going off going on when i when i jumped off my tank because because if i had i'm not so sure i would have jumped off my tank so <laughs> auditory exclusion worked worked in my favor that time um, and visual exclusion and everything, tunnel vision on what needed to be done. <laughs> I'm thankful for all of that because other people recall that happening at the time that I got off, but I don't. Um, and we got two of the crew members out of there pretty quickly. Uh, some some helicopters, uh, attack helicopters, not even medevacs, uh, were in the area as part of this battle, and a Huey landed. Um, and we got two guys loaded up, but they were taking fire. And so they had to take off, which left one crew member inside. And we had probably 10 minutes uh, inside this tank with this battle raging around us where 
calm as we're talking now. We had some pretty good discussions in that tank. Um, pretty formative time for me, those 10 minutes were. Um, and then that, that helicopter came back to get that last crew member um, and evacuated them. And then I got back on my tank and we stayed out there for another couple of days fighting. And um, I'm thankful for the, the guys that I was with that day. Uh, Brian Stan has has done amazing things. He was a UFC fighter and and now does uh, hire heroes here in the USA and just a really good leader. And and his presence on that battlefield was tremendous. Um, but more than anybody, those three guys that were injured, uh, one of them was uh, had to have his ankle amputated, so he's just below the knee. Um, is a uh, amputation and he had some shrapnel in his arm and the tank commander uh, basically shattered his both his legs um, in that blast and he tried to keep them for a couple years but eventually it was that wasn't working uh, just constant pain constant medication still not able to get around so he he's a bilateral amputate amputee now um, and now makes he works for a prosthetic company here in town <laughs> making uh, prosthetics, which is pretty cool, um, and he's—I he, just saw a video of him running around a playground with his kid, which is pretty amazing to me, on two amputated legs. Uh, and then the the last guy um, was uh, paralyzed in the blast. He, the gunner was was thrown against the top of the tank and and paralyzed. So he was the one that took the most time to get out of the tank. Um, good friend of mine, uh, a mentor to me in in so many ways. Uh, but he is uh, living a great life up in northern Idaho. Sends me pictures of fishing and um, happily married, and it's pretty cool. So those guys, the reason I don't like to talk about it also is, is because those guys are the ones that, that deserve all the, the recognition in the sure. world and um, are the, the true heroes of any of that situation. Absolutely. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for sharing yeah. it. Um, I, I have a feeling that they would – that they would flip the script a little bit, <laughs> right? Um, but that's that's kind of how it goes, you, you know. Try and try and shine that light on others, um, and definitely you're someone who uh, kind of per- personifies that in the way that you live. You know, your reticence to do that is just born out of kind of the the type of person you are and and your humility. And we've talked about humility personally, um, and definitely you're you're someone who who finds that important and you walk the walk. Um, and I think you're probably a model for how a person can be relentless and uncompromising, but remain humble. And that's mm. a difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing for me to try to manage sometimes. So can you talk to me about what that looks like in your life, how you manage that, and, and maybe just like why humility is important in the fire service? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. I think that's super generous and <laughs> and unfortunately largely untrue. Uh, but I love that that's the perception at least. Um, I think humility is the, the definition that I've heard numerous times and like is that humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. Yeah, that's C.S. Lewis, right? Yeah. And it it is not downplaying my strengths or anything. Like I, I think there's... I have some things I'm strong at, um, but it's having a right focus on those things too. Like I, I am organized, but I'm like a six on the organization. My wife is like a 10. So 
I don't think I'm a 10. I think I'm a 7, but I'll, I'll acknowledge that I have some strengths in organization. Um, but I don't need to sit and tell everybody about that either. Like, I, that's not thinking less of myself. That's just thinking about myself less. Um, offer your services where your where your strengths are. Serve with those and um, lift other other people up and and try and defer your own preferences uh, when you when you can. So there's things that that you need to pick your battles and and be be relentless in pursuing those. Training for me is one of those that like I want to relentlessly pursue and never take the easy route and fall into the <laughs> fall into the the same patterns of behavior that we see um in lots of different spectrums across the uh, occupations but in our in our area of passion in firefighting when people just sit on the couch and don't want to go train uh i think there's you can you can humbly enter into that and and I'm going to go train. I'm not going to shame anybody into doing it. I'm not going to sit and, and make sure that they even know that I'm going to do it. If they catch me doing it, great. That's come do it with me. Like invite them into it. But um, I don't think you win many people over by by arguing with them a lot. And you win them over by just inviting them to, to be a part of it if they stumble into it. Um, inviting them to tackle something new together and exposing your own weaknesses too. Um, there's just having kind of that right view of yourself um, is for me, I think is a really important thing. I, and I still, like I say that your, your intro there was super generous because in my own head, um, while, I, while one thing may come out of my mouth, oftentimes in my head, <laughs> Uh, I'm playing that card, and I'm not doing that well myself. I'm playing that humble card, but I'm like, I know I'm, I know I can force this door faster than you can. Just <laughs> a terrible example, terrible example to use with you, Stephen Tyler. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't think I can force the door faster. Neither of you guys, but um, yeah, pick, pick the battle there that you want to fight and um, choose carefully. I think. Yeah, excellent. Um. You mentioned your passion for training. Obviously, you're passionate about that. You're putting a lot of time in to Boise Fire Symposium. You put a lot of time in, um, you know, to the department, and you put a lot of time in. And in, in those times when you have to be at work, you put a lot of time in doing the right things. Um, you're a family man. You, you already mentioned you got four kids and a mm -hmm. wife. And and for you, you know, you guys are are opposite in a lot of ways and i love that right <laughs> like you're not going to five conferences a year yeah um outside of the state because of you know it's it's just not the way that your family and your reality. life is arranged yeah. right um so how how have you been able to determine as a data for like how you dedicate time to projects like fire mm -hmm. notes Boise fire symposium um what's that decision making process look like for you it's because so I, I, I guess yeah. i've had failures in that in that mm -hmm. arena myself as a married dad of three and you know someone who's trying to be more on the james greenwood <laughs> bandwagon of going to a, going and doing a bunch of stuff um 
so I, and I think there's a lot of people listening who are just trying to manage that man. They want to be all in all the time, yeah. And they see people on social media that seem like they're all over the place all the time, and I, I think that can lead us down maybe the wrong path sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you manage it? Yeah, uh, I don't always manage that well. Like I said, it's painful for me um, in lots of different ways. I see, I see James getting to go to these different trainings and. I am so jealous because I like I covet that so badly um, that I want to go get that training, um, but that's not a reality. I, I my family would suffer, mm-hmm. um, and I would suffer. That wouldn't be the best thing for me either. I would love that training, but then I'd I'd come home and there'd be consequences because my kids would would not uh, they wouldn't know me as well, and I wouldn't know them as well, and my wife would be uh, totally tired and feeling unsupported um so those consequences are not worth it to me uh at this point in my life i still think maybe someday the day will come that get I'll your get fingers to, crossed <laughs> right that kids my kids up like, a little. you're gonna be at whatever volleyball practice anyway so <laughs> i'm gonna go get my practice you get yours we'll meet up this weekend it'll be great i don't know that that'll happen or not um so i haven't done that well i i've failed my way into trying to find a balance and mm. It's been lots and lots of discussions, and my wife has those same tendencies with her work, where she wants to go all in and and do everything she can. So we go through these seasons where um, she's super busy, and I'm playing that support role more at home, and then I get super busy, and it's more when we're both super busy that we face huge problems, um, and there's more conflict in our house, and our kids are all screaming and. <laughs> nobody's happy and we're not doing the things that we want to do well um so i think it it, for me personally it's all come down to communicating with my wife and trying to look in advance as much as possible we've pretty much resigned to the fact that early june late may early june is going to be terrible because that's busy for her career that's busy planning for when the symposium always falls and that's there's that that point in there of about four or five weeks where we just grind through it and try really hard to not get upset with each other. Um, yeah, it's I don't have a good answer on it other cool. than I think communication is <laughs> is key uh, and and just being open with. I try and be open. I when I see a training that I really want to go to, I ask my wife about it, and she knows that if I'm asking that I've. I've narrowed it down to one that I really want to go. And I realize that she still has veto power. (laughs) (laughs) And that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. I've I've asked to go to things and she says, no, there's, how are you, look at your schedule again. You already committed to these other four things (laughs) right around there. So, um, yeah, that, that open line of communication that my wife and I have kind of tried to develop helps a lot. That's good. Cool. Okay, guys, <clears throat> I want to move forward into sort of the standard refined by fire questions. And there's a handful of them, and, and we'll probably only get to a couple. But uh, my favorite question, and the one that every guest so far has had the opportunity to answer, is if you could have every firefighter in America read one thing, it can be a book, an article, or a short blog post, what would it be, James Greenwood? Oh, man. This is like the, the question that you said in advance that I struggled with most because I tend to try to read a lot, uh, but I also have like weird taste in books. So like I have a hard time always 
like telling people what they should li- or what they should read because oftentimes people are like, oh, "I was terrible. I can't believe. How do you like this?" Uh, so I, I sort of steered away from like the true firefighting stuff because I mean everybody, you know, Andy Fredericks and all those. I mean everybody should read all that stuff, um, and uh, that's not very unique, uh, you know. So hopefully we'll think outside the box a little bit. Uh, so I wrote down all these these titles here, but. The one thing that came to me while I was screwing around today, uh, and I was trying to think of something that I refer back to from time to time, just to kind of realign uh, my compass, is, uh, um, and I, you know, we have like a little internal Facebook thing that we're all kind of on that I post it from time to time, just as a re- uh, refresher for myself. But uh, a guy named Rob Shaw, who runs Mountain Tactical Institute, who used to be Mountain Athlete, wrote this thing several years ago called uh, "What Does It Mean to Be a Quiet Professional?" Uh, and it's just kind of a list of sort of ten or twelve things that he thought was important and, and, and what he defined as a quiet professional and it's something that really struck home for me and something that I look back on I try to do a couple times a year just to reread and sort of refocus uh, what I'm doing uh, and I think it's it's worthwhile and it sort of go, uh, ties into sort of my evolution as a firefighter my evolution as a as a, an adult man and um, uh, kind of where I want to be not so much where I am uh, and he just talks about you know that grind uh, um, that, you know, being humble, being quiet, but also, you know, knowing your strengths and your weaknesses and, and trying to, you know, improve in your weaknesses and, and keep your strengths at a certain level. Um, um, but I think Luke kind of hit the nail on the head there is that, you know, my perspective on a lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of guys, uh, you know, whether it be fitness or training or, or you know, smoothbore versus fog nozzle or whatever we talk about, uh, everybody um, is going for this flashy headline or this argue, this, you know, you know, foolproof argument, uh, and I think there's so much greater in what we do, and there's such a grind to our our professional lives and our personal lives uh, that just accepting that grind and trying to be good at grinding versus um, you know uh, being staunch in your beliefs and uh, having an open mind, but being able to put the work in to do whatever you're doing is important. And I think that article helps me out a lot. And then I'm gonna do two because the other one it's hard for me to read, but I read it every once in a while is. Uh, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl, right. and I know, like you know, everybody listens to Jocko podcast, and he did it a while back. Uh, but I read it a long time ago, and and continue to read it uh, now and again, every couple of years, and it's hard to read. Uh, but it sort of puts things in perspective to me, like how um, the depths that we as people or a society can get into, even unknowingly. You know, we think about Nazis and Holocausts and whatnot, and you know, you think of like jackbooted thugs or whatever. Uh, but it really was just normal people that sort of got lulled into this really uh, awful place. Um, and I think it's worth reminding ourselves because, uh, you know, sometimes looking at the ugly thing, whether it be the guy that's not training or something as, as, uh, as awful as that, uh, to sort of realign uh, with what you think. You know, you, you can't know what good is unless you know what bad yeah. is. And so you sort of have to have that sort of yin and yang uh, so that you can try to live your life on like, the good side of stuff. I think. So those are, my, those are my two. That's great. Luke? Uh, this was a really tough one for me too. I think one one thing I wrote down is anything like just read <laughs> something, um, which probably speaks to my my current mindset of like just please you guys engage with your profession. Um, so that's that's one thing. Find find something to follow. Find uh, there's so many good ones out there. You can listen to this, you know, podcast like this while you work out. You can uh, read. Uh, Fire engineering is great. Fire nuggets is even better. Um, the art of firemanship has always got amazing stuff in there, and uh, there's lots of little grassroots things that pop up and and people trying to 
to influence the fire service in different ways with their flavor of of things so even the bad stuff i'd say <laughs> uh don't necessarily adopt whatever you're reading but but talk to your peers about it because even when you're engaged in reading something that that's terrible it's a terrible idea um if you bring it up it engages everybody it brings everybody into the discussion and um some of those discussions while you're driving around uh between the drills that you're doing uh out in your district those they're so good so that's what one thing I wrote down, but that's not a very good answer. That's it's a, a pretty soap, good answer. That's a soapbox, man. That's, that's not a, a great answer. So um, I, what I wrote down is extreme ownership. I That that book um, had so many really good, clear lessons in it for me. Uh, and part of it is just that I, I like the military uh, side of that, and it was entertaining on that level. But there's so many lessons that I still am pulling from that have helped us out. I think, um, like when we were kind of button heads with our administration early on, um, hearing that lesson of that, that we're on the same team, like we need to make that clear that we're not out to overturn anything. Uh, that was helpful to me and it had an immediate impact. And I think it has, has paid dividends uh, after meeting with our administration, just sitting down together and, and saying, out loud to them like we don't view you as an enemy and we hope that you don't view us that way we want to be on the same team we have the same goals we're in the same department for crying out loud um has been great and there's so many good lessons in that book so if i had to narrow it down to just one that's that's been a golden ticket for me it's pretty great it, it can be you know, a book like that, it seems like that's kind of becoming ubiquitous mm -hmm. within the fire service, but I, I think it's ubiquitous within, like, certain small circles. And I think it'd be – it's impacted me pretty greatly, that message of really just taking ownership for whatever's going on, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and it's – I think it's had more of an impact for me at home than it has really even at work to understand that when I'm having a behavior issue with one of my kids, like – that's that's me it's on me and i'm the one who has to fix it and i'm probably the problem anyway <laughs> so uh cool thanks uh you guys are still fairly early in your careers as am i so what actionable advice would you give to the firefighter with an officer who refuses to train or only begrudgingly allows training luke miller Oof. uh Boy, I wish I could relate to that. I've never been around those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I should. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I do feel like we're pretty fortunate. There's there's a lot of really great captains and and um, crews that we get to work with, and I think that's for the hopefully for the majority of the listeners that that they find the same thing is the true cases that that just begrudgingly you can't get them out of their room is tough. I think oftentimes it seems like um, lacking some imagination is part of the problem. So yeah. if, if you can come up with some drills, I know James is really good at that. He's, he's uh, brought uh, his captain that he'd be working with or even the battalion chief. Hey, what if we tried this? And, and brings that with flexibility and humility. Like, hey, I, I read this somewhere or um, I was thinking about this particular, we want a medical call and this it presented this challenge. What do you think about if 
we go and try tackling that together. Um, I think that's good. And there's, you have to walk a bit of a tightrope there because you don't want to attack them for any reason. Right. Then they, I found that that just makes them dig in their heels and causes offense and drives wedges between your relationship and, and it's just going to be tough. So, um, coming up with some, some ideas like that, uh, is, is helpful. I would also say that there's inertia to it and an object at rest tends to stay at rest. And if you can get that ball rolling, if you can get them out a couple times, it gets easier every single time. And, um, I've always said that the, what I found in the military to be true and in the fire service to be true is the higher the operation tempo, the better the morale. So when we were going on, uh, lots of missions in the Marine Corps, morale was high things were great same thing in the fire service if you're going on lots of calls morale is good especially if they're good calls if you yeah. catch a couple tours with fires uh guys look forward to coming into work um and if you're sitting around doing nothing morale tanks if it's like pacing around the station and watching lame movies and tv shows and not engaged in work uh it's tough to break that cycle but once you get it going you can you can affect some change and there's there's inertia to it so push hard to get that that ball rolling um and it and keep it rolling so the the best thing for morale is good calls you can't you can't really produce those so the second best thing is hard hard work drilling hard if you can come up with a drill that makes everybody sweat and work together to accomplish a, a goal you're going to have a win on your hands, I think. Yeah. Um, Trying to manufacture that operational tempo on your yeah. own. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Um, and if you if you still aren't winning there, just go. Don't give up. Don't don't uh, fall into that complacency. But do it yourself. Throw ladders around the station. I know um, Eagle Fire has inspired me with with some of that. I don't think it's necessarily because they can't get guys to go train, but but using every second of of the tour to be working and training, um, driving by a station, seeing guys throwing ladders and pulling hose and uh, just videos online uh, that you guys have posted, uh, different people in the in the department. Um, yeah, it's that's inspiring, and it it inspires me, and I'm I'm pretty motivated. Um, I think it inspires everybody. We expect guys on probation to be working all the time, and part of that is to learn the job and. If you keep, if you keep that pace and just mm -hmm. keep working, the unmotivated, you're gonna you're gonna cause that inertia. I think in them, they're gonna wanna come and train with you and and learn with you and put in some work, and then the balls are rolling. I like it. Yeah, James. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I obviously Luke, Luke drilled my uh, my thoughts on that quite a lot. <laughs> you know, the inertia stuff. Uh, but I, I, a couple short things to add. One, uh, you know, I came from a, a jump base. I started out in Grangeville, which is a small town, kind of northern Idaho. It's one of the smaller jump bases. Uh, and they had a, a mantra, and it was uh, powered by shame. And they, you know, T-shirts. And, and, and I really took that to heart. Uh, and, it, you know, not in a bad, you know, it wasn't a negative uh, mantra, uh, per se. It sounds kind of rough, but it was a rough crowd. You know, they're go-getters, right? And, like, uh, kind of type A personalities. And But... Um, if you're, if everyone's powered by shame, which I think we all are to some degree, like if somebody's out there throwing ladders, like I feel shame that I'm not out there throwing mm -hmm. ladders as well, right? And so if, if uh, 
and it's it's the same idea as the inertia, right? It's just a different word for it. It's you know like oh I'm inspired. Well I'm kind of inspired, but I'm more ashamed that I'm not out there <laughs> while somebody else is getting better. So maybe that's my own character flaw, but that's how I think of it a lot of the time is just being powered by shame. Uh, and the other part of it, um, you know, I worked for another department before I came up here to Boise. I worked for the uh, Santa Fe Fire Department in New Mexico, and uh, it was a great department and a, and a very busy department. It was a small department. Um, and we ran a lot of calls and ran the transport, so the calls took longer when you're a junior guy riding the ambulance. And uh, um, so one thing that I learned pretty early is not so much that guys weren't motivated to train, but we just didn't have the time because we were running so many calls, um, was we had days off, right? And I know, you know, you have a family and everybody has family, but nothing really steep. There's almost never a four-day that you can't spend a couple hours and drive over to the training tower mm -hmm. and throw a ladder on your day off. And you... You know, people look at you funny because you're there not getting paid or whatever, and I'm sure there's some workman's comp liability issues, which as a lawyer, I can, I can, uh, <laughs> there it you know, is. if there's a waiver, we could probably, okay, I'll send you a waiver if you need one. Uh, but um, just getting out and getting your hands on things, and I think it makes you better, and if you can get a couple guys to go do that on your days off, and I know we've done that a lot, uh, either shooting videos or um, training or whatever we were working on, go out and pull hose, and I think that's almost more valuable to me sometimes than training on duty, because on duty sometimes... Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been lucky and been with good good company officers, uh, and um, but I've also worked at, at busier places here in the valley. And um, you know, sometimes when you're drilling, you're kind of like you know, kind of tapping one foot because you got all your hose stretched, and or you're you know, people are running calls in your district because you're out of service training. Uh, and so it's almost nice for me to come in on a day off if I have some time or the ability or training engine or helping out the academy has been huge for me, um, just because you don't have that sort of um, you know, the clock ticking in your head of how long you're out or how much hose you got pulled out. And you can actually really work on stuff because you don't have that, um, that same, um, you know, fear of calls. Because when, I, when I'm at work, I want to run calls. That's, you know, that's what I'm, what I'm there for and what I really want to do. And training is bonus. But uh, when, I, when I have an opportunity when I'm not at work to train, um, that's, that's icing on the cake for me. And that's when I think I've really learned uh, the biggest lessons for me. So if you really are having a problem when you're on duty, then go off duty. You know, that's, that's what I would say. Uh, but, you know, I'm luckier than some. So. You're luckier than <clears throat> How do I want to say this? You create your own luck, right? <clears throat> and the inertia is alive in your life because you kept the ball moving. Mm -hmm. And you did that as a new guy, and you did that as a new guy, and now even as a, a father of four with a lot going on, like you still find time to put in a little extra. Um, you've kept that inertia going. So it's not so simple as, like, well, that guy can do it because he doesn't have any kids. Like, we can all come up with excuses. Mm -hmm. like, and yeah. there's always a reason why we shouldn't have to do something. Um, but I guess the whole point is, doing something you don't have to is exactly what's going to make you better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, I'm still trying to, I'm playing around with this idea of a, a fantasy firefighter draft and I'm trying to find a new label for it. Cause I think that sounds kind of goofy. Uh, but the idea being, you know, we, we look up to people in our organizations, people in other organizations, people who are long dead, who wrote the books that we came up reading. And this was just spawned by long conversations from delirious people on, <laughs> on the road trips coming back from trainings. Um, but I think, I think it's kind of a fun thing to do to, to try and staff an engine company with, with the people that you'd want to work with, you know, whether that's 
people you've already mentored who are badasses mm. or, you know, I, I don't know, you know, the most, you know, Ben Franklin, whatever. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, so uh, I think I think the way I want to ask you guys to do this is to have uh, you each pick a firefighter and then and then Luke pick a driver and, and James pick a captain. So so Luke, go ahead. Man, there's so many good options. I, I take a lot of guys we work with. But this is the dream team, so uh, Field is no longer even a firefighter. You can, can put I, him can wherever I, you want, man. This is there? your show. I'd put Aaron Fields as the... Yeah. yeah. And you know that hose is getting stretched quickly, efficiently, and he's going to be ready for water. Uh, you, have a, you have a hard time going wrong Yeah, with Fields in the backseat. It's true. He's funny. He's passionate. Yeah, it's going to be... <laughs> the, the crew's going to be alive. <laughs> yeah. Right? All right, James. Uh, who joins Aaron Fields in the in the backseat of your my engine? Engine. Uh, if I'm going, ing- well, I, uh, that's a tough one, right? Because if you go all time, then you know Andy Fredericks sort of wrote the book. Uh, mm. uh, but I, you know, I didn't know Andy Fredericks personally, so yeah, yeah obviously didn't have the, the opportunity. So I mean, not to speak poorly of the dead, but he might have been a real jerk. I have no idea. He's a great, <laughs> a great author and a huge, you know, a great instructor. But I, you know, I didn't know him. Uh, uh, that that well, um, and so um, man, I don't know. That's a tough call. I'm gonna go Brian Brush, uh, just because he was such a um, uh, help early on, just with our uh, our stuff. I know he's not a technical backseat guy anymore. He's in training and a company officer and everything else. But at least he was he's a pro for a while in Edmond again. Uh, but he's another guy that's just passionate about the job and and um, um, uh, seems like a guy you'd want around if if something. Uh, were, were a miss. Yeah. It's uh, a good choice. Yeah, you look at a well-rounded dude. Yeah. Brian's kind of that model. Passionate um, guy, happy-go-lucky, happy to be around, and just a wealth of information mm-hmm. uh, in, in every aspect of firefighting, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can't say enough about him uh, in, in, that, in that regard. For sure. Yeah. Well, is he ever going to show up at Boise Firefighters? We ask him, <laughs> uh, just so it's out there, we ask him every year, and yeah. he's always so busy <laughs> that he's got, yeah, nothing, yeah. yeah. He's got, uh, like, the, the first option, like, the option of first refusal, like, yeah. we, we call yeah. him every year, so... I was just giving him a hard time about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he sent me the certificate once of when he attended back in the day and the freeze first thing. So I've got he's been here before. <laughs> uh, Luke, who's driving your engine? Man, P- pumping more I, importantly. I think, I think for me, uh, Laguerre. I, I cannot think of anybody that can do it more efficiently than him he's just yeah. who'd you rather have so pull levers than dennis laguerre yeah he he wouldn't even have to calculate anything he just has it memorized yeah like savant he's done it enough times that it just flows i think he can look at valves and they open Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> He operates pumps by telepathy. Yeah. If anyone could, it'd be Dennis. Yeah. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to drive, like have him drive an engine. Maybe he's a terrible, terrible on the roadway. <laughs> yeah. But pumping a fire, that guy can do it. <laughs> and he may not have socks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he he was limping around last year's symposium because he didn't have... Yeah, we had to go buy him socks at the CVS. He didn't have a pair yeah. of socks. He was getting all blistered up. Poor guy. I've seen Dennis in shoes, I think, once. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's always flip flops, and yeah, it's he's got a uniform. Yeah. Uh, so if I'm if I'm going for a driver, uh, I'm going local, uh, and hopefully, 
nobody listens to this and thinks I'm ass kissing, but I'm gonna go Rick Payne. Uh, mm. He's a local captain that we've had. He goes way back, taught FDIC West, and he's kind of our one of our engine gurus locally here. Um, and he's like the quietest, most unassuming, humble. Can't get a word out of him, but when you do get words out of him, it always is the exact right thing which annoys me sometimes more than it. Uh, but he's the guy, if I have a question about engine stuff locally, that I'm going to ask because he will have an answer. Uh, and, uh, and again, not unassuming, quiet, you know, can never get a hold of him. Uh, but when you do nail him down, uh, his, his, uh, his opinion is worth, worth its weight in gold for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I had a guest on episode five. Dina Ali and she made me play the game along with her which yeah. was I had not intended yeah. to do but uh, I chose Dennis as my driver and Rick mm-hmm. as my mm-hmm. captain as mm-hmm. well um, Rick's just blown my mind a few times yeah you yeah. know and he was the he was the person who really um, kind of opened my eyes to engine work being cool yeah and and made me realize how much I sucked yeah you know <laughs> which uh, was not a feeling that I appreciate very much. Yeah. Well, that, that, you know, I'm like a you know, kind of cocky guy. I'd talk too much, and I like would go to all these classes, and I'd come home, and I think I'd have some original yeah. idea or something like new age. You're like, oh, man, I saw this, and these guys are doing this here, and this super cool thing. And you're like, yeah, we tried it five years ago. And you're like, ah. Oh. Yeah, you know, like, right. <laughs> like, damn it. <laughs> you know all this stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was, it was like that um, when we did a nozzle study, and I reached out to Rick, and, and he just – Basically, he basically gave me the answer yeah, off the at the very beginning, and, yeah. the, and the next three hundred hours that I spent on it, where I, I should have just listened to Rick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the same thing. Rick was the first guy who really introduced me to the idea of static beds years ago. I was still on probation, and I was just helping out with uh, an academy class. And I was like, well, how do you think we should load our blitz line? He's like, I think you should get rid of your blitz line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you should just stretch yeah. static. Yeah. And I was like. At first, I'm like, "What is he?" Yeah. And within five minutes, my brain just yeah, exploding. I know. Yeah. He's right. Yeah. Here we are, years years later, mm-hmm. and and James and I will be in Portland next month. Yeah. Uh, teaching static beds at at the firemanship conference. Yeah. So, um, that that didn't happen by because we're awesome. It happened because of guys like Rick. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Pouring into us. Yeah. I'm just like I've never had an original thought in my life. I don't think, and so I'm just stealing things from everyone else. So basically just like a human recording device. <laughs> That's what this podcast is, yeah. man. I stole every <laughs> element of yeah. this podcast yeah. from other things that I liked to listen to. So. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Well, we'll wrap up, guys. Um, but before we do, what's on the docket for Fire Symposium 2018? What can people be looking forward to? And when is registration going to open up Luke Miller? Yeah, Luke Miller's our organization guy. <laughs> well, let me put my glasses on here. Um <laughs> The uh, registration we usually try and shoot for right after the Super Bowl. Um, I'm not positive we're going to be able to hit that this year. Um, just waiting on a few, the, the last few key pieces, but that's what we're pushing for, week away. Um, and we have three classroom sessions. One is by one of our local captains here. Jason Barnard is his name, and he's, he's another guy like Rick Payne, just wealth and knowledge, and he's he's going to be retiring soon. So we wanted selfishly locally to sap as much as we could from him. What's he teaching? Um, he's going to be teaching, uh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to put yeah. you on the spot there. Yeah. No, he, uh, that's one of the pieces that we're waiting on is, is okay. he's taught a few different things. Um, so he's going to trim it, trim some of those classes down. Um, and, and get us a, a class description and class name. Um, but, 
it is it is selfish that we're using him and and James and I and the other local guys want to gain from from yeah. Him, but I'll I'll add into that just real quick. Sorry to step on you, Luke, no. but um, you know not everyone who's listening to this is from the Treasure Valley of Idaho. But Jason is one of the best fire guys I've ever spent time with. Yeah, you know, so um, for people who maybe don't recognize that name, like Jason Barnard, is what the fire service is all yeah. about. He's that's what I was going to follow up with. Like it is selfish, but he I would put him up against any class I've sat in. He's a great instructor, wealth of knowledge. Um, fun to be around and everything that comes out of his mouth seems to be gold gold so uh he's he's one aaron fields is going to be coming and teaching again another classroom session and uh pete van dorp um is is coming to teach on some of the latest studies that they got from uh ul nist and kind of give us a good update on on what they found and and the implications of it um so those are the classroom sessions we have a, a concurrent classroom session going on from mike dragonetti in he is going to be teaching a classroom and a hands-on training on uh, handling elevator emergencies. Um, so the the 6th of June is his hands-on day, and he has to teach the classroom day on the 5th. So those are going to overlap. Um, every Anybody can go to that handling uh, elevator emergencies classroom session, um, but if you're going to take the hands-on, you have to go to it, if that makes sense. I don't yep. know if I explained that very well. So that's classrooms uh, for hands-on training. We have basic forcible entry and followed by advanced forcible entry uh, from Brothers in Battle. Uh, phenomenal uh, forcible entry props and reps and student to – I mean, you, you come off of one day, if you take the basic forcible entry, you come off of that truly, I think, as an expert for – forcible entry you've got so many reps so many such a solid solid foundation of how to do it um and it's those guys their class always goes long i don't know what the problem is <laughs> so just so in case you're listening like you're gonna be working until six at six p.m that <laughs> yeah. day and yeah. it's yeah. always cody's fault just yeah blame cody yeah yeah but, but the, yeah we're lucky but yeah with olsen and these guys and cody terrestrial coming up from portland like every year we try to fold you know brothers and battles guys in just because a you know, we're friendly with them because we're, we see them all the time, but also because it's such a good class, and it, you know we fill it up every year because everybody wants to take it because it's such a great forcible entry foundation mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Brothers in Battle is also going to be teaching uh, hands-on training. Uh, they're, they're, the entire Brothers in Battle cadre, I think, is coming <laughs> just about, uh, and they'll have another hands-on class, uh, VES Beyond the Door, which is. I have not gotten to sit in on much of it. I've caught pieces from some stuff at, at our local Fools. Um, but from what I what I hear and what I see online is a phenomenal class. Um, and coming from these guys at Brothers in Battle, I, I have no doubt that they'll knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Um, Fields and his cadre are going to be teaching Nozzle Ford over the two hands-on days. And then finally we have Gary Lane and his cadre coming to teach uh, the do-it-yourself engine company. Gary Lane. <laughs> That's a good lineup, man. Um, I love Boise Fire Symposium. I love that it's here and it's a resource for everyone locally as well as regionally. And you guys are doing it right. You guys bring great classes and great speakers. And I can't say enough about it. So if you're listening and you're thinking about it, stop thinking. Go register. And um, we'll see you in June. Absolutely. Yeah. June 5th through 7th, yep. Yeah, June 5th through 7th. Uh, there's a Facebook page. If you search for it, you can get some updates there. 
or just on Fire Nuggets. Yeah, but also I just do a quick plug, uh, not only for us, but then you know David Sprague uh, and you know Fonzo mm -hmm. and those guys at Fire Nuggets. Uh, they've been so helpful uh, to us when we started and, and ongoing, uh, and they have a um, a conference that they're doing as part of Fire Nuggets as well in the Bay Area. Uh, so if you're, you know, in that in Northern California in May, uh, they're doing a similar conference, and then, you know, Denver Mile High Conference in October is a similar conference, and uh, you know we've all kind of been able to, um, you know, work with each other and, and sort of have that framework of Fire Nuggets to to um, to sort of prop up all of those conferences, and they're all equally good, and you know it's, it's the same idea. We're just trying to do basic firefighting uh, that's not expensive, uh, and it's it's. Uh, it's pretty fun to be a part of that. So mm -hmm. I'm pretty, pretty, uh, pretty lucky to be a part of that whole system. So. Very cool. So, yeah, check out those conferences. Check out the Fire Nuggets Facebook page. Um, they're always posting whatever classes are going on in the different Fire Nuggets chapters throughout the country. And check out Boise Firefighters Symposium on Facebook as well. Guys, thanks a lot for coming. Uh, it's a lot of fun to just sit down with a couple of buddies and uh, and rap. So appreciate you making the time. No, thank yeah. you, man. Great job with this whole thing for sure. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I've benefited already from previous podcasts of yours. So now they hopefully. get to benefit from you, dude. <laughs> hopefully, there's at least I didn't say anything terribly stupid. I know. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better. And let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do. 